Greetings and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and Happy New Year. It's still January, so we can say that for a few days. And uh, since we were last on the podcast, so much history has happened. Uh, some good, some bad, some ugly. Um, but today we're going to focus on some of the good. And that's one of the big stories of 2021, of course, is going to be the global distribution of what is eventually likely to be several vaccines that will slow, control, and ultimately defeat the COVID-19 pandemic that we've all been living in over the last year. And I suspect this is a story we will continue to come back to as we track its development and specifically uh, cover the role that business is playing in the development, distribution, and administering of these vaccines. But today, we're going to begin by taking a step back and exploring the history of vaccines more broadly. And man, did we get a rock star of a historian to help us with this topic and to give this moment in history some fascinating context. Robert Hicks is Senior Consulting Scholar and William Maul Meese Chair for the History of Medicine of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. How's that for a title? Uh, for over a decade, uh, Mr. Hicks was the director of the college's Muter Museum and Historical Medical Library. His most recent book, Civil War Medicine, A Surgeon's Experience, came out in 2019. And as you're about to hear, he is very knowledgeable about vaccines and has, dare I say, an infectious enthusiasm for the topic. Uh, so on that note, please welcome Robert Hicks. Well, good morning, Robert. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. So uh, we're, we're talking at a historic moment here in the, in the arc of, of medical history and, and, and vaccine history in particular. And so per perhaps where we can start, Robert, is share for us what is the origin story of vaccines? The origin of story of vaccine goes back thousands of years into Africa and Asia when we're talking inoculation rather than vaccination. That's an important distinction. The idea that uh, some material could be removed from the sores of a smallpox infected person, the raised sores that uh, turn very ugly, unsightly and painful and release a liquid called lymph. Somebody recognized that taking some of that lymph and scraping it into the skin of a healthy person would confer immunity to smallpox. Now there wasn't the scientific understanding of the disease smallpox that we have today, but people could put two and two together from observation. So that practice uh, was active in many parts of the world. And an English woman who was married to an emissary in uh, Turkey in the early 18th century recorded this practice too. And this became widely publicized in Britain, for example. But the, the difficulty is you're putting a deadly disease into a healthy person's body, they could get the full-blown disease. So there's that risk too. But in the late 1700s, we have vaccination. And it's credited to a doctor, a country doctor in a country estate in the western part of England, Edward Jenner. He noticed that milkmaids who were milking cows that seemed to have smallpox-looking sores on the udders would contract the same thing on their hands but it would give them only some mild symptoms of smallpox and they would survive. It didn't have the mortality and the severe symptoms of full-blown smallpox. And he reasoned that 
if it, you could take that substance out of the cow's pustules, inject it into a person, scrape the skin, put it in, perhaps they'd be immune to the real target disease here, which is smallpox. And that turned out to be true. Thus, vaccination was established. And the etymology of that word vaccination comes from cow. So that's the difference, inoculation, vaccination. And we have had the vaccination practice applied to other diseases over time. First with smallpox, by the end of the 1800s, uh, we get into other diseases into the 20th century, polio, for example. Uh, we finally get a vaccine to eradicate that mid-century. And uh, even today, of course, with COVID, we're developing vaccines. And the idea is still take a substance, maybe attenuate it or weaken it of an original disease, put it into a healthy person to activate the antibodies, defenses of their bodies, to brace themselves to ward off the big disease, the target disease, if it should strike. Mm. So we've had vaccination for roughly two centuries plus now. And there's there's been a lot of comparisons, of course, over the last year with the pandemic of, of 1918, uh, you know, what was known as the, the Spanish flu. And was there a vaccine developed for that virus? How did ultimately that global crisis from a century ago uh, ultimately uh, come to an end? And you know, is is the, is the Spanish flu still still around? Can you still contract that? Well, the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic we now know to be a strain of flu called H1N1, and we know now. And they recognized then that there could be multiple versions of the flu. Some seemed to hit harder than others, but even the weaker ones exhibited some of the same symptoms. You get the sore throat, the coughing, the muscle aches, but you could get really severe symptoms in the high mortality cases. The thing is, uh, although we know H1N1 was the 1918 flu, and that H1N1 is what we all got vaccinated against for flu this flu season, we still do not know why it was such a high mortality disease in 1918, but it came and it went swiftly. There may have been multiple waves of it that didn't produce the uh, huge amount of deaths, but there was a huge spike in death in the United States in around uh, October and November of 1918. Now, the thing is, uh, unlike with COVID, at the time, uh, doctors tracking the disease still did not understand what it was, its nature. They only knew it from observed symptoms. So isolating it in a laboratory and figuring out how it behaves was not known in 1918. Nevertheless, there were some doctors who made some educated guesses to think, we've got to do something to mitigate death. Maybe we can get a vaccine. Let's try this. So some vaccine was manufactured in limited quantities and tried in limited populations, and it apparently had no effect at all on the flu. It may have staved off maybe some secondary infections that can creep in along with the flu, but it didn't do work with the flu. But what happened in 1918 is the research really began in earnest to figure this out. And it wasn't until the 1930s, long after the 1918-1919 epidemic or pandemic passed, that the flu virus was actually identified in the lab. But it wasn't until years later at the end of World War II that the first effective vaccine so it was over 20, 25, 26, 27 years from a pandemic to a, an actual vaccine. In the meantime, you had to figure out what the virus really was and how it behaved. So they didn't have any of that. And there was no international coordinating body to research this or to figure it out. So every country was pretty much on its own, unlike now where we have surveillance systems, a World Health Organization, and we can get to COVID a little bit later in the conversation. 
Mm. Uh, nobody knows why the flu started to bump down. Herd immunity plays an issue, plays a, a role in this. Um, but even with Philadelphia being one of two of the highest mortality cities in the United States, the other one also being Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, hmm. people were baffled by why the mortality uh, rose so steeply and quickly and then subsided almost as quickly. Uh, in Philadelphia, the high mortality span ran about six weeks, but for the following months, there continued to be higher than average mortality for a normal urban city. And uh, uh, there could have been multiple strains that both came before the high mortality version and even came in bumps afterwards. Flu uh, viruses can proliferate in multiple strains, and that's one of the challenges of having a vaccine that you estimate what might be the target that's going to really affect people and what isn't. But since you mentioned uh, swine flu, Spanish flu, uh, Spanish flu was another term for the flu of 1918. Nothing Spanish about it. It's just that reports started to surface in Spain, there was no press censorship and everything was reported. Whereas other countries, particularly with World War I going on, exercised a great deal of censorship and didn't want to dampen the war effort by reporting about this disease coming up behind the front lines. So uh, the flu virus that was the real killer is still out there. And we know that the swine flu uh, pandemic of 2009 there was a flu pandemic in the late 1950s. These didn't have the, the mortality and sweep of COVID, but they nevertheless produced high numbers of deaths and they all are genetically related to the 1918 flu. So that one still lurks out there. Uh, it's still possible for a flu variant to crop up and start killing people all over the place. Uh, there was a different strain, I think H5N9 that surfaced in China about four or five years ago and killed about one out of every two people that it struck. And there was worry that something like that could take off in the way that COVID has. Uh, doctors, disease experts have been predicting for years that pandemics are coming. And at least one in the next hundred years is likely to be a major flu one and other things besides. That prediction was made at an international conference just five years ago. And here we are. COVID. Fascinating. You know, the point you make is also really interesting too, obviously, sort of the context that the the H1N1 virus flu of 1918 was as Spanish as, I guess, Chinese uh, COVID-19 is. So that's also a really interesting um, parallel. Other than the comparisons to to the, the flu of 1918, uh, you know, what other pandemics or vaccine, vaccine developments throughout history do you find relevant or is interesting in the context of the, the COVID vaccine? Have there been any other sort of case studies or, or experiences throughout history that, that you've been reminded of given the experience we've gone through over the last year? Or has the development of the COVID-19 vaccine, especially given its speed and scale, just been completely sort of unparalleled? I wouldn't say COVID is unparalleled. And uh, this country has a history as other countries do of disease outbreaks. And we've got to remember that devastating disease shapes human populations, just as human populations shape the contours of how diseases spread. And uh, we could look back at another big crisis in American history for a good example, and that's the Civil War. Here we are today in 2021 with both a political crisis as well as a disease pandemic. Well, during the American Civil War, 
while the, the North fought the South, the South found itself with a smallpox epidemic. Multiple regions of the South had uh, smallpox outbreaks. Now, they knew at the time they could uh, apply the Jenner technique uh, and take the, the cowpox and inject it. They also, of course, knew about this older inoculation or variolation technique of taking lymph from smallpox sores of actual smallpox infected people and putting it in healthy people. But the South had a big uh, obstacle here because it was fighting a war. It was trying to justify its existence as an independent state. The ports were all blockaded, so they could not import, say, vaccines. They also could not manufacture them. They didn't have the facility to do this. So they had to find other means. One of the difficulties was uh, every Confederate soldier was supposed to be vaccinated upon entering Confederate service, but that didn't always take place. And you couldn't guarantee that the vaccine that might be used for that purpose was actually pure and clean. Now, where vaccines were available, they were administered, but soldiers quickly figured this out. They said, wait a minute, I see private so-and-so over there. He's got real smallpox and you've isolated him in a tent. Well, I can just go over there with a knife and prick his sores and stick some of that stuff in my body. I ought to be okay and I'll do that to my buddies. A good example was a soldier in Virginia who went home to his hometown, got himself vaccinated that way, as he said, in both arms by going to a person who was infected. He came back and said, hey, buddies, I can do this. You don't have to go see the doctor. Here, take some of mine. And uh, they would take substances out of him and essentially infect themselves. The problem is they were all getting syphilis. So the person from whom the, the lymph or the, the scab material might have been taken from that original smallpox sufferer also had syphilis. So that spread with the virus. And the Confederates effectively did what we do today with contact tracing, trying to figure out who got it from who, got it from who, got it from who. But they had an amazing crisis with this throughout the Confederacy, and they were desperate to figure out how to get good vaccine. So what did they do? In some cases, uh, cows that had obvious cowpox were kept in small herds, and they tried to just essentially milk them from time to time, so to speak. But one technique was to go around to plantations. And the South was very rural at this time, lots of farms and plantations, and look for children, healthy children, who would not have been tainted with, say, venereal diseases or maybe other diseases and lived in isolation. White children who lived on plantations and farms, particularly the black children, and they might deliberately infect those children, come back in two weeks, look for the full-blown symptoms, find the pustules, drain the pustules, or collect the scabs when the pustules dry up, and make vaccine out of them. Now, the belief at the time was there was a variant of smallpox known as vaccinia or vaccine disease. Nobody knows exactly what vaccinia was, but it apparently evolved from cowpox or maybe horsepox or other related poxes. Today, we know poxes are part of a huge family called orthopox viruses. So anywhere on that spectrum, the interest is high because if your target is a big, fat, ugly disease like smallpox, maybe a distant variant that's not really harmful could be used as actual vaccine. Well, they were aware of this during the Civil War, but the Confederacy was largely unsuccessful in containing this problem. Uh, one battle, a major battle for the Confederacy in Virginia, 1863 Chancellorsville, they had to pull 5,000 Confederate soldiers out of the line because they'd all been vaccinated and the vaccinations went bad. They spread their symptoms that were not smallpox, like syphilis. So the idea of harvesting vaccine with children 
and nobody had any say in this. Nobody knows what the parents thought of this. Uh, the military just came out and did it and infected the children, came back, harvested it, and then reinfected them when they got healthy to keep a steady supply. Uh, so imagine all those Confederate soldiers fighting, among other things, for the perpetuation of slavery, whose health might have been, been maintained by lymph taken from the bodies of black children and injected into their bodies, and they didn't even know it. So there was a crisis, and uh, whether it contributed to the defeat of the Confederacy, hard to say, but once the Confederacy was defeated, smallpox outbreaks continued, and of course people are moving, displaced people. White people are rushing to get revaccinated because they see black people on the road and they think they're inherently infected with smallpox. So the whole post-war recovery is also completely uh, screened by fears of smallpox, fears of infection, and people moving away just to get away from it. Amazing. I'm curious, Robert, from a research perspective, you know, how has these, these, these stories and insights that you're sharing, how have the sort of research methodologies changed over time? I mean, have there been advances in terms of now the ability to, you know, leverage artifacts or, or, or DNA? You know, the, some of these things that you're sharing, have these always been known and just passed through documentation over time? Or have there been other uh, tools with technology that have enabled more, more research and science to, to yield these kinds of findings that you're sharing with us? Well, in just the last few years, both museum collections, such as those at the Mütter Museum, which has effectively a lot of organs and specimens pickled in jars among bones and other things, um, those collections are now being transformed into biorepositories because they are now sources of information about early disease. And uh, on the other hand, you have to have the science with a technological capability to recover DNA from a wide range of materials. A few years back, the Ancient DNA Research Center at McMaster University in Canada teamed up with the Mütter Museum, while I was there, to look at cholera. They were trying to map cholera over two centuries. What is going on with cholera? It's different strains. How has the DNA of cholera evolved? Well, if you want old cholera, you got to find it either in old bodies buried in frozen places or go to a museum collection. But no one had up till a few years ago recovered DNA from a pickled specimen from the 1800s. But it now has happened with one of the specimens at the Mütter. And it revealed this interesting and surprising history of cholera. Well, now we've been doing it with smallpox. We have in the Mütter Museum collection uh, small kits that were carried by doctors for vaccination purposes. And they're set up so that you could uh, retrieve the lymph from those pustules or the scabs and essentially grind them up, mix them with water and insert that stuff into healthy bodies. And it has all the little tools to do that, including a little container to hold scab material. Well, wouldn't you know it, I discovered looking at these kits, I was researching them at the moment, I found five of them. They had those little tin boxes inside or for scabs. I opened them up and they had 19th century smallpox scabs in them. Oh my God. Uh, an oh my God response was followed by calls to health officials and the Centers for Disease Control. And there was a discussion whether I should be quarantined or not. But I have been following examples of these kinds of things showing up in museum collections. There have only been a handful over the last 15 years. And all of the examples that came to light were much weakened and not infectious. But the thing is, you never know, you can't be certain. So our samples, uh, we had to go through the World Health Organization. They went to our friends in Canada. 
And of the five kits, three yielded genomes, and they are traceable to women of European ancestry in the Philadelphia area, which makes sense because these kits were used by different doctors in the Civil War era in Philadelphia. And through non-destructive testing of a kind that was not even possible five years ago, the DNA was recovered, the genomes reconstructed. And I have to say that for all the documentation we have, all the letters, diaries, publications about vaccination throughout the 1800s and, and into the early 20th century, we've, done, we've got for analysis no samples at all of actual vaccine material. It probably lurks in some museum collections as it lurked in ours, and now we are testing some materials from other museums that might be candidates for new insights. What we found out is that the smallpox strains that apparently were used for vaccination purposes are very, very distantly related from the target disease and far more distant from uh, the remedies, the vaccines used for smallpox in the 20th century. So here's something that would not be detectable from just reading the literature. Mm. Uh, you had to get some real science in there to find out that there's a bigger story going on here. And the big open question and the relevance today is, how far can you go down the spectrum of diseases from that target disease and find something that is safe to use that makes a good vaccine? And apparently in the Civil War era, they were experimenting to find that out. So the testing goes on, but uh, this is the first time it's happened. These are the oldest vaccine samples ever identified in the planet. So we are on a search we're in with our partners in other museums to see what else we can find. Well, it certainly unleashes a, a, a new dimension to archives management, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so the other thing you touched on a few minutes ago, which I, I think is so interesting, is, is throughout history, disease has been such a major force of, of, of society and you know, over the last 75 years or so, certainly in, in, you know, developed parts of the world, like, like here in the United States, we've all just grown up in an environment where that sort of looming constant threat of disease and, and, and pandemics just haven't been the kind of, it just hasn't been a, a part of, of daily life. And, and for many of us, uh, you know, who didn't, you know, you know, we all hear stories from parents or grandparents about, you know, polio and whatnot, for, but for for many of us, you know, we just have, have lived in this kind of blessed world of, of, you know, getting vaccinated as children from various diseases. And COVID has really been the first experience of, of what essentially humanity has contended with forever. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us, you know, feel that a lot of the, you know, the, the anti-vaccination sort of movement or, or people that are, are, um, supportive of that and, and distrust vaccines, you know, just haven't sort of been exposed to that threat. And, and I'm curious to get your, your take on that, because I know in, in some of the, the conversations we've had, you've suggested that, that sort of an, an anti-vaxxer element has actually always been a, a sub-theme or, or there's always been a, a part of the population that have been very resistant to vaccines. And, and certainly I can, you know, in, in you sharing some of your insights on the methodologies and practices that were used, I can, I can appreciate why that might, you know, garner real fear and resistance. So I'm curious to get your take on that and what your sort of interpretation of the current 
anti-vaccination kind of movement is and how um, the COVID vaccine may or may not uh, affect that mindset. I think we are seeing a familiar pattern, but on a larger scale with resistance to even people announcing they will not take a COVID vaccine when it becomes available to them. These are the same people that would resist, say, the social distancing, the refusal to wear masks. Uh, it's actually been part and parcel of studies conducted by epidemiologists, by the Centers for Disease Control, to reckon into the picture of any possible disease outbreak, the unwillingness of people to uh, observe the science, accept the science, or even accept the health maintaining recommendations, whether it's masks, the social distancing, or something else. It's always been there. Uh, even at the birth of our nation, to give you an example, uh, Washington, George Washington does not get enough credit for managing a disease outbreak as well as his other achievements. Uh, when he was named commander of the Continental Army, he faced a challenge. He had to assume command of the Continental troops that had encircled Boston. The British troops were holed up there, and obviously it's a valuable harbor and it had to be taken. Problem was smallpox. Smallpox was raging in Boston. Uh, now, the British soldiers were not getting infected to the degree that, say, the Americans might, because many of those British soldiers had grown up in urban communities in uh, England where smallpox was simply endemic. You simply expected somebody to get it in any given year. Uh, the civilians in Boston were severely afflicted by this. So what do you do with a city you want to capture, but you don't want to go into because it's disease-ridden? Uh, George Washington himself had had smallpox, gone through the full couple of weeks of bad symptoms and suffering, but he survived it. So he knew what would happen, but he also knew that by having had the disease, he would be immune to it. So uh, he worried that the British might release civilians that would cross the army lines and bring infection to the American army. To stave off that possibility, he forbade uh, soldiers from allowing anyone coming out of Boston, any civilians escaping to come into American lines, but instead go to a separate camp where they could be isolated in case they had the disease. And they knew that they simply waited it out for two weeks, that disease would make its appearance and run its course. And so if two weeks passed, they didn't get it, probably safe, just as with COVID today. So uh, when the British uh, started to evacuate and he wanted to move troops into Boston, he only chose those troops who had had smallpox and maybe had visible scars to attest to this, or maybe they had been vaccinated he sent them in, and then once the city was cleared and held for American troops and the British were safely gone, he had all troops that had not been vaccinated, vaccinated, isolated for two weeks, allowed them to go through a, a mild course of the symptoms and survive so his entire army could be resistant to the disease. Uh, this was a really important achievement. It could easily have been a disaster. And he didn't exactly have a lot of allies to make this happen because Boston's in Massachusetts. Massachusetts law at the time was anti-vaccination. They had passed a law forbidding it, thinking there are just too many issues with this, too many things that could go wrong, we don't trust it. Uh, subsequently, Massachusetts changed that. But uh, one famous Massachusetts citizen, Benjamin Franklin, learned about this all to his cost. He knew about vaccination, he knew what it could do, but he refused to do it for any of his family. And he had a child die. And after this, he learned his lesson, he made sure Everyone in his family was vaccinated, but he lamented dearly the loss of that child and punished himself to the end of his days for having not vaccinated that child. Um, even when smallpox vaccine became um, accepted 
throughout the 1800s, particularly in Britain, which also had an intense anti-vaccination movement, as did the US. It was some time before British authorities were even able to pass mandatory vaccination laws. The anti-vaccination society, by name, grew up in Britain, believing that the claims of doctors about how these diseases were transmitted was not true. They said, it's all down to filth, filthy cities. That breeds the disease. That's where you've got to go, clean up the mess, and you'll find the disease goes away. Physicians are saying, no, there's something that's viral. It gets into the body, uh, and it passes from person to person. There's contagion. That's what we're trying to get at here. And so there was an essential difference in how you see the facts of the disease, even way back then. And that's carried forth. And Americans just don't like being told what to do, to stand six feet away or wear a mask. Uh, even the Centers for Disease Control in a study uh, years ago looked at what in a future pandemic might it look like um, that would require people to accept these controls by law, if it was mandated by law rather than just a voluntary thing. What would it have to, what would it take to get people convinced to finally do this? And they estimated that perhaps up to 1% of the US population would have to die before people would be willing to accept mandatory safeguards. 1% of the US population is over 3 million people. Well, we passed the 400,000 mark with COVID. I don't think we want to get to 3 million, um, but that's the estimate based on what it was thought Americans would be willing to tolerate. As you think about sort of the, you know, the, the 300 year history of, of vaccinations or, or, or longer, as, as you noted in the beginning, uh, as you think about the, the COVID vaccine, what do you see kind of its legacy? Do you, do you have a sense of that yet? Or is it too early in terms of what might the legacy of the, the COVID vaccine be in, in the arc of vaccination history? I think in a year or two, we're going to see documentaries produced, books written about the real heroic effort to develop these COVID vaccines. Because uh, looking at the long trajectory of history, there's certainly been pandemics of devastating result in the world. And obviously we're experiencing it right now. We experienced it in 1918. Uh, what we have now though, is the ability to coordinate scientifically worldwide immediately. Data can be shared, data can be discussed. Uh, people can act on it. There are laboratories, there are safeguards for developing uh, disease resistant materials, vaccines particularly. Um, there are protocols for handling, for testing, for distributing. Um, all of those things, of course, are designed to ensure maximum safety and to convince people that there is something you can rely on that you're willing to have injected into your bodies. Uh, we haven't had in any other era of history the sort of um, coordinating efforts, uh, the science that we do now. The fact that three independent laboratories can invent viable vaccines, have them tested, um, make sure all the safeguards are observed, uh, get them reviewed as peer review is really what this is. Um, convince government authorities that this is, this is the thing we must do. Set up a network to manufacture and distribute these vaccines and monitor results. To do that as fast as this has all happened in the world today is absolutely unprecedented. And the story of this has been set aside for the nonce simply because of the urgency to get this done and to get this out there and get people vaccinated. Uh, once we reach the era of not wearing masks anymore, um, 
people are going to reflect on this. And uh, there will be international conferences. There will be uh, conferences involving government and science to look at what we were able to accomplish under extreme stress and how can we position ourselves to do this again if we have to. That's the story. It's a stellar achievement that we were able to do this. I never, uh, when I watched this unfold in the light of having just created an exhibit called Spit Spreads Death on the Influenza Pandemic of 1918, which is gonna be up for a few years for anyone who wants to visit the Mütter, um, uh, and having read all of this literature in the last five, six years about the coming pandemic, what to expect, how it's gonna happen, and to see it all pretty much play out as people predicted, um, I thought, oh my gosh, uh, here we are, uh, first uh, quarter of the of 2020 is now over, now we're in isolation, we're not going to see a vaccine this year, and I'd be surprised if it shows up in 2021, and yet here it is. Before the end of 2020, it was out and being distributed and administered. Um, this is, uh, to say it's a stellar achievement is an, is an understatement of what has been accomplished. Uh, we don't know yet, the public uh, does not know the faces, the names of the people that really did this work, but we're going to have some real heroes to celebrate when this is over and people can pause and take stock of what has just happened. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it must have been for you personally, just such a um, such an odd experience for this to have unfolded over the last year, uh, given given your your work. Um, well, let's leave it there. Robert, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your, your insights and, and perspective uh, with us and uh, stay safe until you get that vaccine. And stay safe to you. And uh, remember, getting the vaccine does not mean that we stop wearing masks. We're still going to be doing that for a while. It'll be helpful to have those vaccines. But yes, let's stay safe. All right, that's our episode. Thanks again to Robert Hicks for that great discussion. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel.